So thoughts on, uh, any more thoughts on 14 and 15? Before we get started, you guys just want to dig in, don't you? Mm-hmm. All right, all right, we can dig in. So back, let's go back to the start of chapter 14. It might look like Jonathan is just tired of waiting around, and so he decides to just go and do something on his own and fight against the Philistines. But I don't think it's that. When you look at Jonathan's words that he says, and then you also look at his actions, based on his words and his actions, I think Jonathan is just tired of all the fear. You know, I mean, I can relate a little bit. I think right now with everything going on in our world, sometimes I'm a little bit tired of all the fear. And I want to see some more faith. And I just wonder if that's where Jonathan was. I mean, these guys that are supposedly supposedly his soldiers or even his peers, how many of them that he knows have gone off to hide in a cave or a cistern or a hole somewhere? And I just think he's tired of the fear. Where's the faith? So he says to his armor bearer, let's go. Verse 6. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Saul could have seriously taken some notes from his son. He would have been so much better just to let Jonathan lead the army and Saul could just go home and eat or something. I don't know. Enjoy his life. What is Saul doing back in chapter 13? He's numbering his men, right? Verse 7, it's 13, 17. He's numbering his people. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. He realizes he's only got like 600 left. He's really worried. And then there's Jonathan over here that's like, the Lord can save by many or by few. Doesn't matter. Saul here is operating out of fear. Saul also operating out of pride and arrogance, while Jonathan is operating out of faith. Where is Saul at the start of this chapter? Yeah. I thought that was weird. Yeah. Our translation says that he's in the pomegranate cave. So, and other translations call it a tree, say he's under a tree. But it does make it sound like this is a nestled spot where they're, they're like taking cover. So, he's hiding also along with everybody else. And I think Jonathan is just like, I'm out of here. This is, this is ridiculous. Let's see what God can do. And who's he with? This is interesting, too. Who is Saul? And the, you know, the text is real careful to give us these details. Who does it say Saul is with? He's with the priest. And what particular priest is he with? Did you guys catch that? Yes. 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 So, yes, he's the son of Phineas. And that's the son of Eli. So this is Eli's rejected line of priests, right? And so did Saul go and get this guy after Samuel, uh, like, made him mad? Or has he been with him the whole time? I don't know. It's just interesting to think what we really have here, this picture, we have a rejected prince hanging out with a rejected priest. That's, that's quite the pair. Like, what a great group of guys. <laughs> you have this rejected prince hanging out with this rejected priest. And the crazy thing is, out of all the sons that have been mentioned in these stories so far, we're up to chapter 14, and we've had quite a few sons in these different stories, out of all the sons, it's Saul's son that is the godly one. Right? Isn't that ironic? I mean, I would have thought that it would have at least been Samuel's sons that were godly, but no, they were taking bribes. They were not godly men either. So Jonathan, by his actions and his words, we can tell that he believes God is exactly who he says he is. And that's faith. If you want a good definition of faith, I like to say faith is believing God is who he says he is and will do as he said he will do. So you can't have faith in something unless God has said he will do it. You can have hope, but you can't have faith. Faith is believing God is who he says he is, and God said he's going to do this. And so I'm going to have faith that he will fulfill that. That's faith. There's a difference in hope and faith. Saul, or Saul, Jonathan has a very strong faith. 
And what I found fascinating too is he heads out to go see if he can do anything and he comes across this Philistine garrison that's at the top of two cliffs. So if that were me and I got to that and I'm like, well, I guess it's not God's will for us to do this after all. And I just would have turned around and gone home because I'm not climbing up those cliffs. Okay, they're named. And anytime that something is named, personally, I think it means it's big, right? I mean, we name things that are big. What's that? Big enough to name it, exactly. Yeah, like we name mountains, but we don't usually name small things. So I'm picturing some gigantic cliffs, and the fact that the narrator is giving us all these details about the landscape is really interesting. So, so their name, Bozes, I'm, that's how I'm going to say it, it means the gleaming one or slippery one. So that one's slippery, Bozes. The other one, Sina, it's the thorny one. Doesn't that sound like fun? <laughs> we got one that's slippery and one that's thorny. I'm not climbing up those things. I mean, that to me definitely would have been confirmation. Like, I'm going home. I'm going back to the camp. This was definitely not God's will. I want it to be easy, right? And when things get hard, a lot of times I just assume, okay, well, that wasn't God's will for us. So, all right, back to the drawing board, I guess. Or I get really disappointed or something, right? God does not make it easy, okay? Because easy just makes me lazy. It doesn't refine me, okay? It doesn't help me build up perseverance. So Jonathan then decides, here's what we're going to do. We're going to show ourselves to the Philistines. I don't think I would have done that either. And then that's going to help us decide whether or not we're going to go forward or not. And so if the Philistines say, yes, you should come up to us, he's like, then we're going to know God has given them into our hands. But if they say, what did they say? I forget what the other one was, but don't come up, basically. Then we'll know we're not supposed to go up. He is confident that the Lord is going to show them exactly what to do. And of course, the Philistines say, yeah, go ahead and come up. So he's like, let's go. They've given us, they've given them into our hand. God has given them. But what I love about that is that he is allowing God to be God. I want us to see that. As excited and as faith-filled as Jonathan is, okay, and I think we do need to be faith-filled in order to allow God to be God, he is allowing God to make this decision. Should I go or not? Should I go or not? And then he gets confirmation, yes. I 100% think he would not have gone if he had not gotten that confirmation, right? He is allowing God to be God. Jonathan does here what Saul doesn't do. He brings himself under the authority of God in this situation. Okay, you're God, I am not. You tell me what to do, and I will listen. All right, that's what we see in this first instance here. But we know he does shimmy up these crazy mountains, whatever, cliffs, quite miraculously, I would think. And then he gets to the top and is strengthened by the Lord. I mean, you would think you'd be pretty tired once you got to the top of a slippery or a thorny cliff. And then he kills 20 men at the top, right? just with his armor bearer, just him and one other guy. And then the whole panic ensues. Okay, and then there's Saul, who sees this craziness happening, wants to investigate. It's interesting that he's like, who's gone? That's his first thought. Who's gone? Who's, who's missing? I mean, his first thought definitely isn't, well, is the Lord doing something? You know, his first thought is who's gone? And I wonder, if it's not because he's concerned about that person, but if it's because he's concerned, he's not going to get the credit. Kind of like we saw him do at the beginning of chapter 13. Jonathan did have some success, and Saul takes credit. So I don't know what's, what's going through his mind at that first. But then the next thing, do you, did you guys catch the next thing he did? What's he do next after he sees that Jonathan is gone? Get the ark. What happened the last time they did that? It got taken, didn't it? And they got defeated. Why in the world is he calling for the ark? It's interesting. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. I really don't. Other. Th- it's like he feels like he needs to 
That's right. I wonder if that is it. Yeah, because at the end of chapter 15, what's he doing? He's trying to save face and trying to worship in front of Israel. That's a good point. Maybe that's what it is, trying to look like the big bad leader. But even though he calls for the ark, what does he do then? The priest is getting ready to do whatever he does. And what does Saul say? Did you guys catch that? I don't even know what verse I'm in. Withdraw your hand. Yes. He's like, stop. He sees all the action going on in the Philistine camp, and it is really revving up down there. And he is itching to get over there. And so he says, withdraw your hand. What he means by that is, don't ask the Lord. No, don't ask the Lord. I don't have time for that. We're going anyway. This is what we're going to do, and we'll just ask the Lord later, okay? We have to stop here for a second. Because this is so applicable to us today. We get so rushed sometimes. We get so in a hurry. We get so worried about things. And we may not use the language, withdraw your hand. But we definitely tell the Lord, I don't have time for you. Sorry. I mean, we don't even say sorry. We just go. We just go without him. I have to take care of this. And we just go. And we don't ask the Lord what we should do. That is exactly what Saul does here, and it's arrogant. And sadly, as much as I don't want to say it, it's very arrogant for us to do the same. I mean, the Lord has given us an incredible invitation into his throne room whenever we want it. I mean, I don't know how to compare that. The Queen of England calls and wants to have tea, and we're like, sorry, we don't have time. I'm not going to pass up that opportunity. Well, the God of the universe has said, ask me anything. I will direct you, I will guide you, I will lead you, and we don't have time. We don't have time. Ah, oh, that one hurt. There were so many things in these chapters <laughs> that, oh man, these hurt. I'll ask later, that's what we decide to do. I'll just ask later. That is so dangerous. Any time we aren't willing to ask God's opinion probably means we've idolized our own opinion. If we aren't willing to ask God's opinion, more than likely we've idolized our own opinion. We, just, we don't care what he has to say because either we really want it or well, we just don't have time. I mean, that's still idolizing something, right? If we don't have time for the Lord. But if we aren't patient enough to seek God before we proceed, then we aren't ready to proceed. Just think, let that sink in for a minute. If we aren't patient enough to seek God before proceeding, then we aren't ready to proceed. We will not rely on God if we aren't willing to wait on God. We won't rely on God if we aren't willing to wait on God. There is a lot of waiting in Scripture. There's a lot of waiting, yeah, in our lives, in the life of, of faithful saints. There's a lot of waiting. We won't rely on God if we aren't willing to wait on God. So your first principle for the night really really could have been any one of those things, but is this, God's will is always worth seeking. God's will is always worth seeking. Whether we feel like it's an opportunity that we just can't pass up, whether we're anxious about something, you know, and we just, we, we've got to just do it now, we've got to do it now. You know, God's will is always worth seeking. He's invited us to ask, and he wants us to seek. If God's not in it, and this is the thing, if God's not in it, I guarantee you we don't want to be either. So just kind of think about that one. If he's not in it, we don't want to be either. That's what Moses had said at one point. If you're not going, I'm not going. <laughs> and that's the kind of attitude I want to have all the time because I know when I go without him and I just do my own thing and I ask him later, I mess it up every single time I do that. And I just wonder 
what God would have done had Saul actually asked if he should go. Like if Saul had actually, I mean, even though I think he was doing it for show, what if he had asked the Lord, should I go over there and fight against the Philistines? I don't know what God would have said. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on it. I mean, the thing that came to my mind was Exodus 14 when the Israelites are getting ready to cross the Red Sea and the Lord is like, I will fight for you and you need only to be still or silent, depending on your translation. I love that verse. I will fight for you. You need only to be still. Seeking God is what opens the door to seeing God. A lot of times we want to see him, right? I want to see you, Lord. I want to know you, Lord. But then we don't have time for him. We don't have time. We don't have time to seek him. Just If you can just show me on the side, that'd be great. I've really got some stuff to do. But seeking God is what opens the door to seeing God. And I don't know. I'm just speculating. But I wonder if Saul missed out here on the bigger miracle. Yes, God gave them victory. He did. It tells us that in verse 23. But could it have been even more incredible than, than that? I think it easily could have been. God was on the move. The earth was quaking. And Saul goes, he wants to get in the middle of it so that he can be part of the action, maybe take the credit for it, right? We miss out. We miss out when we don't seek the Lord for his will, right? Now, personally, I think the only reason God gave them the victory is because of Jonathan's faith. I don't know. Yeah, because he's definitely showing faith, and we know the Lord rewards faith. Keep that in mind, right? It pleases the Lord when we remember that he will reward us. It's okay. It's all right to want the reward of the Lord. Uh, the, the language there that Jonathan uses is interesting. He calls the Philistines uncircumcised in verse 6. His mindset then, with that kind of language, is telling us it's covenantal. He's thinking about the fact that they are God's people. They are the circumcised. And the Philistines are the uncircumcised. So he's thinking along the lines of, of this is for the Lord. This is for the Lord's people. This is for, for the Lord God Almighty. In contrast, though, why is Saul undertaking this mission? It tells us in verse 24. In verse 24, at the very end, he says, you know, he says, you guys are cursed, you cannot eat food until I am avenged of my enemies. He's just thinking about himself. You're not going to eat until I am avenged of my enemies. So he is proceeding not for the Lord. He is not seeking God. He didn't have time, right? And he is not following the Lord. And so he puts his men under this ridiculous oath that they're not allowed to eat anything. Can you imagine fighting like that all day with no food? I mean, like I just told you, I get angry riding in a car with no food. I can't even imagine fighting in a battle all day and they get to eat nothing. And I think we talked about this earlier when we were discussing, but I think maybe Saul thought this could somehow please God if we do some fasting. And I think we do that kind of thing too. We try to make up for our unwillingness to follow God in one area by being really willing to do something over in this area. I don't want to do this thing over here, but oh, I'll do this all day long over here, right? I think we try to make up for it as though we can appease God or trick God into thinking that we're actually being obedient. He sees our heart. It's so silly to think that we could trick him at all. And it's interesting, Saul's oath then causes the men to sin, doesn't it? His word, we're going to call it Saul's word, causes the men to sin. Nowhere in scripture does it say that you can't eat during a battle. That's not in scripture. There is the idea of preparing yourself before the battle um, and, and setting yourself apart for that where maybe you don't have relations with your wife. You know, you, there's a holiness aspect to going into it. But there's, you, there's, it doesn't say that you cannot eat during the battle. So then they see this honey literally dripping from the forest. <laughs> 
mouth watering and they're so faint and weak from all day and they cannot eat it. Except Jonathan, he eats it because, you know, he doesn't realize that his dad has made this ridiculous curse. And I, I just, I love the language that his eyes were brightened. I think I need to start using that more often. That was a good meal. My eyes were really brightened. <laughs> no one's going to know what I mean, but I think it's kind of fun. Like we talked about, night comes, the oath lifts. They're so hungry, they start having this big old barbecue. Saul is so quick to point out their sin, isn't he? They, they're eating the food with the blood still in it. He's like, you have dealt treacherously, verse 33. And this is the pot calling the kettle black, big time. Saul's own sin is the reason they're sinning. Saul's own sin is the reason they're sinning. And yeah, he wants to look good. I think, again, he wants to save face. He wants to put on this air that he is religious and that he loves the Lord. And so I don't know if it was his initial idea, but he rolls a stone over and then it's like, oh, that kind of looks like an altar. Maybe that's how it came about. I don't know. But he allows the men then, no, bring, bring the meat here and let's do it properly and let's offer some sacrifices to the Lord. And actually, if you didn't notice, or, and I don't know, I think it's in verse, might be in verse 16, or 16, 36. And it's the priest who says, hey, maybe we should inquire. Oh, no, that's, that's the next part. What's he want to do? What's Saul want to do next? He wants to go fight some more, doesn't he? I think it's still that night. I don't think it's been very long, and he wants to go fight him some more. So he's allowed his men to eat a little bit of meat. And then what's, I'm getting ahead of myself, what's the priest say at that point? Hey, maybe, what's that? Let us draw near to God. Oh, well, that might be a good idea. Maybe we should ask God if we should go and do this or not. So they do. And God is silent. He doesn't say anything. And so Saul just assumes then that it's not him. Notice he assumes it's not him. Who has sinned? Who has done a sin that God is not answering? What's up? And I think that what he's thinking in his mind is, who didn't keep my word? That's what he's thinking. Who went against my oath? No one answers. So he's like, okay, fine. We'll ask the Lord who went against my oath and sinned. And the law, law eventually falls to Jonathan. And Saul has every intent on killing his son. Can you imagine? And again, I think it's just a safe face, right? This was her, his word, and he's going to keep his word. And Jonathan did not keep his word, so he's going to kill his son. But the Israelites are not going to have it. They recognize that God gave the victory to them because of Jonathan, and there was no way they were going to let that happen. Now, ironically, Saul is going to kill Jonathan for not keeping his word, which Jonathan did so innocently, while it's Saul who deserves to die for not keeping God's word, which Saul does so blatantly. Isn't that ironic how you have this whole setup here? So what we see in this chapter is Saul seeking to establish his own word. He's establishing his own word instead of following God's. I was going to say that back and forth. Like, he really didn't have the authority to even declare an oath over anything. Yeah. But he, that did not fall under his jurisdiction. Yes, yes that's what I Yeah, to be able to do that. It, yeah. yeah, isn't that interesting? Yes, and we'll see in the next chapter that he makes a statue of himself, right? I mean, the arrogance and the pride is just growing. But Saul's word fails, right? So even, even in the outcome, he says, you know, as surely as the Lord lives, I and mean, basically he lays the curse on himself then, I'm going to kill Jonathan. But he doesn't keep that word, does he? Because the people ransom him. So what you're seeing in that scene is you're seeing the word of the king fail. You're seeing it fail at that point. 
Saul's word is not helpful either. It did not help his men. It hindered them. In 1 Samuel 14, 24, the men are hard-pressed. That's the words that's used, hard-pressed because of this oath. But in 13, 6, if we go back to the last chapter, the men were hard-pressed because of the Philistines. Yet now it's their own king that's suppressing them by his own word. So here's your next principle. Not listening to God's word will lead to the establishment of our own. Not listening to God's word will lead to the establishment of our own. Not listening to God's word will lead to the establishment of our own. That's really the reality. So what's better, listening to the one who sees everything, knows everything, controls everything, or listening to myself, which knows nothing, or sees nothing and knows nothing, or some voice in the world that doesn't know anything, Obviously, listening to God is better, right? Who knows everything and sees everything. I want to look at, this, this was fun for me. I hope it's fun for you. I want to look at the effect of Saul's word versus God's word. That's what really stuck out to me here. Saul's word made his men weak. It made them faint. As opposed to God's word, which does what for us? Strength. Yes, do you see that comparison? Psalm 119, 28. You can write that down. My soul melts away for sorrow. There's a faintness right there. Strengthen me according to your word. But his word strengthens us. Psalm 119, 50. That was 119, 28. Verse 50 of that same chapter. If you just want to sit in some... Uh, amazing uh, awe of God's word. Just sit in Psalm 119. It's very long. Too. It is very long. Uh, it's the long. It's the longest. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's so many cool things in that chapter, though. I mean, just, you know, get a pen and a paper and start listing all the benefits it says in that chapter of God's word. There's so many benefits listed in that. Uh, that same chapter, verse 50, God's promises give life. They give us life. That same chapter again, verse 92, the author said this, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. That's how life-sustaining God's word is. So God's word upholds, reviving the soul, while Saul's word brings down and made his men faint. Now, I thought this was so cool. I'm going to read you Psalm 19, 7 through 11. And I just thought this, this was so fitting. So verse that's uh, Psalm 19, 7 through 11, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. You ready? Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. How cool is that? It's sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb, which we see right here in this chapter, right here in this forest. Saul's word to the men meant they could not eat the honey. It kept them from God. They could not eat the flowing promises of God. He had promised them a land flowing with, with milk and honey. But with God's word, we get something even sweeter, don't we? We get something even sweeter than honey, than the drippings of the honeycomb. God's word doesn't just brighten our eyes, it revives our soul, revives your entire being. 
And I was thinking on my way here tonight, and so I had some chicken scratch over chicken over here on the side. Listening to any other voice, be it our own voice, I listen to myself way more than I really should, or some other voice out there in the world, it's only going to leave us feeling faint. It's only going to bring us down. We're only going to feel weary when that's the voice we're listening to. But listening to God's voice is going to make us stronger. It's going to strengthen us. Just like honey. Okay, all right, get this. Real quickly before I came, I looked up some tidbits on honey. Does anyone know much about honey? I know nothing about honey, all right? I don't even really eat it that much, except sometimes I bake with it. But now I'm wondering if I should eat it more. Okay, honey is the only food that doesn't spoil. How about that for a comparison? Thinking about God's word does not spoil. Does not, from generation to generation. So honey also, it can sustain human life all by itself, because in one little package, one little, you know, all in one, it contains everything we need for our substance. It has enzymes, water, minerals, and vitamins. Now, I don't know if that's true. That's what the internet says. (laughs) And I made a really great comparison. So if you go home and look that up, there's naysayers. I'm sure they're like, that's not true. But I don't know. Real quick Google search. That's what it said, all right? Honey, it can sustain your life. But what a beautiful picture that then the Lord tells us that his word is sweeter also than honey. It's even better. It can sustain you even more, more than the drippings of the honeycomb. Now, this is just, just for your fun right here. To make one pound of honey, the bees in the colony must visit two million flowers. That's a lot of flowers. I get mad at them when they visit my flowers, but they're working. And fly over 55,000 miles. They are in the frequent flyer club. (laughs) That is a lot of miles. Isn't that crazy? But then get this, a single bee only produces one-twelfth of a teaspoon of honey. Can you believe that? I mean, so we know a guy, and this is, I think, what got Craig interested in it, He's done the honey thing now for maybe just a couple of years. And this year, he got like 350 pounds of honey. And then I hear that one bee only produces one-twelfth of a teaspoon of honey. That's crazy. It's just neat. God is so cool. It's so cool. And just the fact that honey doesn't spoil, and, and supposedly, I don't know, go home and research it, let me know, has all these life-sustaining qualities to it. This is God's word for us. It's life-sustaining. Okay, I have to go back for my chicken scratch that I made. So the, the bottom line of this comparison, as I see it, is this. Those who heed God's word are going to be blessed. But those who don't, you might end up living under a curse. Those who heed God's word, though, they're going to be blessed. I want to make sure that we do understand one thing. God does not curse his children. Okay? He loves his children. He will discipline his children like any good parent will do. He does not curse his children. But there are times in our lives where we might feel cursed. We might feel like God has it out for me. This is not fair. My life is not going right. This is not what I ordered. This is not what I expected. This is not what I wanted at all. I know there is some tough stuff going on in all of our lives. We carry around a lot of burdens, a lot of wants, a lot of hardship, a lot of things that we're dealing with. But God blesses us, okay? I want us to have that picture in our mind. He's wanting to sustain us, all right? He's, we want to blame him, okay? But, but he's not cursing us, right? He's blessing us. He came so that we could have a life and have it abundantly. Just sometimes it looks a lot harder than we want it to and a lot different than we think that it should. Now, as I thought about the descriptive imagery of these cliffs, I want to go back to that real quick because I thought about that a lot this week. And just the fact that all, all that detail, I don't think it was there for nothing, you think about 
Jonathan seeing this slippery cliff and this thorny cliff, and he's at the bottom of it. I think that's where we're at sometimes, is at the bottom of two giant thorny and slippery cliffs that are just too big and too scary. And why did you bring me here, Lord? And why do I have to spend time at the bottom of these cliffs? And I don't know how to get up them. And yet the only way through is through. The only thing to do is to climb up them. Somehow get through that slimy, slimy, thorny, I can't say it right, slimy, thorny mess. We've got to get through it. I want you to listen to this imagery in scripture. This is so cool. Psalm, and just think how perfect this fits for those times when we're at the bottom of those cliffs and all it is is a thorny mess and we're so sick and tired of it. We don't want to deal with it anymore. We just want it to be easier and different. I want you to think about, that's where you're at, okay? Think about these words. This is what the Lord says to you tonight. Psalm 121, 1 through 3. I lift up my eyes to the hills. There's those hills. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now get this. He will not let your foot be moved. We've got some climbing to do. He will not let your foot be moved. The other translations, some of them are going to say slip, slippery. <laughs> and some of them are going to say stumble. He's not going to let you stumble. He's not going to let you slip. We're going to have to go through it. All right? He's not going to let you. His word carries you. His word sustains you. Jude, listen to this language. Jude verse 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Another translation says falling. He's going to keep you from falling. He's the one who's going to keep you from falling. Okay, you're going to have to climb the cliff. You're going to have to go through it. God's word, he can keep you from falling. Psalm 18.2, I love this. The Lord is my rock, I'm skipping a little bit, my deliverer, my stronghold. What do you need to climb a cliff or mountain climb or anything, rock climb? You need a stronghold. Those guys are grabbing for something to hold on to. We're going to have to go through those cliffs. It's the only way to get there. Something awesome is going to happen when we get there. I think we're going to see the glory of God. He's going to be our stronghold so we can do that. It's slippery and it's thorny. But he's our stronghold. I don't think any of this language is there for, a, for an accident. Psalm 1829. For by you, I can run against a troop. How fitting is that? For by you, I can run against a troop. And by my God, listen to this, I can leap over a wall. You can leap over a wall. There might be a big wall in front of you. But by the Lord, you can leap over it. Now, what about those days when we're just too tired? Those days when we just can't do it any longer. We've been climbing for too long. That cliff is too big. We're hurting too much. It's not fair. It's not, we're just, we just can't do it anymore. I saw Isaiah 40, 30 and 31 in a whole different way this week than I ever have it says, even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. Girls, when you just can't climb anymore, what does he do? He's going to carry you to the top like eagles' wings. Isn't that amazing? I got goosebumps everywhere. It's just so cool how God's word just fits together. I love that. This is what the Lord's word does for us. We need to stop listening to all those other voices and listen to this one because that's what he does for us. He sustains us. He's going to get us through all that thorny mess that's sitting in front of us. All right? All right. I've spent way too much time on chapter 14, but it was a long one. Sadie, yeah. Sorry. I was just going to also say, like, Jonathan's faith in 
Yeah. Because for sure. Like I don't think he would have eaten of it if that's what his, his dad said. Because here at the end, you know, he's just obeying his father. He says, "Okay, I will." Yeah. I will he submitted himself, didn't he? I will die. And, yeah. And That's pretty cool, isn't it? Again, yeah, you see his faith continuing, and then the people then uplifted by that again. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with you on that. And we're going to continue to see Jonathan's faith. I mean, he, he had the kingdom ripped from him at this point. It should have been his. It's not his because of his dad. And he's going to support David. That's gonna, that takes some strong faith right there. So we're going to continue. I really like Jonathan, so we, we get to talk about him more. Unfortunately, for the last nine minutes, we have to talk about Saul in this chapter. But chapter 15, then, we already went through um, what happened in chapter 15. But based on all of the things that we just talked about, right, how amazing God's word is, it's in our best interest to obey his word at all costs, isn't it? Yeah, it's in our best interest to do that, whatever it's going to take. So when Saul gets God's word from Samuel that he is to completely destroy the Amalekites, it is in his best interest to do exactly as God has told him to do. Now, what's interesting to me is that Saul goes, he knows he's been assured of the victory already. God told him to go and do this, and since God said it, he can be sure he's going to be victorious. And yet, what does he do? He musters 210,000 men for this job. I don't think he needed all those guys. Is he doubting? Is he just trying to, again, be arrogant and flaunt what they have? I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. They just beat the Philistines, really bad odds, with, you know, maybe 3,000. But what we know, definitely 600 men, not very many. To Saul's credit, he does go, and he protects the Kenites. Those are um, Moses' relatives. His father-in-law was a Kenite. So he does, he, he, that's a, a godly thing for him to do, to protect them. But then, as we discussed earlier, he's not obedient because he saves the best of the cattle, he's keeping you know, the, the booty, as they call it. And he also brings back the king. Now, when they did that, it was, this is interesting, to show that they were the king of kings. That's what it showed to everyone else. They would bring back these other kings from battle because they were the king of the kings. Isn't that interesting? But there's only one king of kings. So Saul fools himself in this chapter into thinking that he's been obedient. He thinks he's been obedient. And that, to me, is really the scariest part of this entire story, that we can deceive ourselves into thinking we've obeyed God's word when we haven't. That's scary. Because I, I do think I do a pretty good job of trying to obey what the Lord tells me to do. But we can deceive ourselves when we've not been obedient at all. 1 John 2, 4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Here's another one in 1 John. 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, there it is, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I do think, sadly, there are a lot of very deceived people in the world who think they're Christian, who think they're believers, but they're only one by name. They're not really one. They don't know the Lord. And uh, sadly, I think that's a lot of America today call themselves a Christian, but they're, they're deceiving themselves into thinking they're fine. They're fine. I think we do that too sometimes when we deceive ourselves into thinking, well, all God really cares about is that I go to church or that I get these things done or that I tithe or do the, go through these different motions, but we know God cares about the heart. I was just getting ready to say that. So that's, that 
about the image or the religious act. You know, yes. he's going to make a, oh, he's going to do a sacrifice. He's going to build an altar. What, you know, all of these things that make him look like he's doing what godly people do, like look at your, yes. say a prayer in a circle. Or something. But it's about relationship. Exactly. It's about relationship. Exactly. So I think that's just a good place for us to stop and go, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. You know, or do we have that relationship with the Lord or have we just been going through the motions, maybe trying to put up a front that we have that relationship with God, but he's worth having a relationship with. <laughs> For sure. Mm-hmm. It can be... But sometimes you can't see it yourself. You can't. Person, That's right. Your go-to person needs to tell you. That's right. You. Yep. Gently. Gently. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Keyword. <laughs> Keyword, gently. You know, accountability can be really scary, right? Mm-hmm. We don't want accountability, but we should because it's, it's, it's going to keep us in relationship with God. That's what accountability is for. We don't want to do it because we don't want to be found out, but we need to do it so we will be found out, so we can have a right relationship with God. I have more, but we're running out of time, so I want to try and hit the... I I do want to read what Samuel said to Saul in chapter 15, because I love those words about obedience being better than sacrifice. So verse 22 says, And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption, or arrogance, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So when we are only half-hearted in our obedience, it's still disobedience. That's what it is. Even if we're 90% obedient, it's still disobedience. And any time we are disobedient, that's what it is. It's a rejection of the word of the Lord. I don't want to reject the word of the Lord. I don't think any of us want to. But that's really the bottom line is when we're not fully obedient to God's word, which we know we can't live in perfection. That's why we need Jesus, okay? So I'm not saying that. I'm not going there, all right? I'm just saying in our walk with the Lord, we can tend to make a lot of excuses we can tend to think, doing really good, doing really good, right? And there's a lot of self-deception going on there that we need to work on because the reality is we might be rejecting the word of the Lord in a lot of ways because we're listening to our own voice or we're listening to another voice of, of the world like we just talked about. Now, why is obedience better than sacrifice? Okay, because... If obedience had been kept in the first place, sacrifice would have never been needed. Got to think about that for a minute. If obedience had been kept, sacrifice would have never been needed. So God is more glorified and self is more denied by our obedience than our sacrifice. That's really the harder thing to do is to obey not just to offer a sacrifice. It's a lot easier to bring your lamb or your bull or your tithe or a few minutes of your time or a, I don't know, casserole. It's a lot easier to do that, okay, than it is to bring every thought before God and to constantly subject our will to his, asking for his kingdom to come instead of our own. That seemed to be a theme for us this year. In many ways, obedience then is the real sacrifice. And that's your third principle tonight. Obedience is the real sacrifice. 
Obedience swallows up our arrogance. Right? Because at its core, disobedience every single time is a rejection of God's word. Which part? <laughs> yeah, every disobedience every single time is a rejection of God's word. And a lot of times, our disobedience is really for the purpose of trying to make ourselves look good when it comes down to it, trying to make ourselves look better for some reason. I mean, that's here what's going on with Saul. He's more worried about his reputation than he is about his sin. Come with me, you know, he says to Samuel. Come with me so that I can go and worship the Lord in front of everyone. He's not really repentant of his sin. And he says in here, I've sinned, I've sinned. No, repentance, with repentance comes true change. And there was no true change in Saul's life. He's more worried about his reputation at this point. He wanted to look good to the people. He did not care about how he looked to God. That's a scary place to be also. What God thinks, though, is what matters most. What God thinks is what matters most. What does God say? What's his opinion on the matter? What's his word say? His word is really the theme of the whole night. What's his word say? If his word says it, I have a responsibility to be obedient to it. I am free in Christ. I am not free to sin. My freedom is to serve Christ. That's my freedom. I've been set free from sin and death, my old ways, enslaved to my flesh, in order to be enslaved to the Lord. But it's a blessing. It's a blessing, right? It's a really, really, really good thing. It's life-sustaining, all of it is. Following his voice, letting him be the king, heeding him, putting your will into subjection to his, it's not a bad thing. You're, you're serving the king of kings, and that's a really, really good thing. All right? I think we're out of time. Did it go fast? It went fast for me, too. <laughs> I hope it went fast for you. Let me pray, and I'll let you all out of here. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for being a voice in our life, just always there to guide us. Just what a joy and a wonder and so amazing, God, that you've given us this precious gift of your word, sweeter than honey, sweeter than the honeycomb. And there it is, day by day, just dripping in front of us, Lord. And I pray that these ladies will eat from it, that they will just take your word and allow it to sustain them as they walk through those thorny places in life, Lord, and those slippery places in life. I just pray that they will look to your voice and it will be your voice that upholds them. They will just find themselves deep in your word, God. And someday they'll be on the other side and I know that you will put a new song in their mouth to sing because you're a wonderful God. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.